You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. With that, enough. Grab your Bible. I'm going to invite my dear friend Adam Nye up here. He doesn't like me to announce him as Dr. Adam Nye, but I'm proud of him. So it's Dr. Adam Nye, a theology prof, teacher at uh, Valley Christian, although he's off this summer. Yes. And uh, he's part of our preaching team. Adam, I will stop embarrassing you. Go. Thank you. Well, I'm going to embarrass myself a little bit. I, um, as you can tell from looking at me, I'm, uh, I'm of the bigger variety, and I always have been as a kid. Uh, you know, I'd be at friends' houses and, like, break their chair or something. Uh, in high school, I had to have, like, this special uh, bigger football helmet because my head was bigger than those kids. And today, I told Andy I wanted to use his uh, iPad podium, and I'm like, yeah, it fits. I swear it fits. And I, this is the clip right there that broke it off. And I feel, because my iPad's too big. And I don't know why that struck, like, deeper feelings. But it did. I'm going to pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for this morning. Um, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for uh, this study we've been doing through um, chapter 8 of the book of Romans. It is, it is a powerhouse. It is, um, it's honestly kind of tough to, like, to fully get how, how much you say in such a short space. But I pray that you would, um, you would open our hearts and our, our minds and our souls this morning to just receive the, the power of this dense proclamation of the gospel. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as, uh, as Andy said, uh, I, I teach high school. For a living, I, I I teach high school Bible. I teach a class on Christian doctrine to people that are 15 years old. I try to teach them about like the deepest areas of Christian belief. It's a lot of fun. Um, and almost all the time it is. It, it has its challenges. And one of the biggest challenges is like, where was your head when you were 15? What was the scope of things you cared about? Um, I know where mine was. Um, and one of the huge blessings of being a teacher at a private Christian school is that I get to pray with my kids. We have a lot of teachers at this school. Uh, a lot of them are teaching at public school, and they've got an incredible ministry, and I know they all pray for their kids. Um, but I get this like other privilege where I get to pray with my, with my students, which is a pretty cool thing. But anybody who's worked in like youth Christian ministry knows the phenomenon of the prayer request. Uh, I'm just kind of listening for people who know what I'm talking about. So like I, I give the, ki- the kids the chance to give their prayer request so I can pray for them. And the, that's a good window into the scope of things that they care about. Well, I'm like, okay, so we're going to pray. Like, what can I be praying for, for you guys? And the pretty standard ones are like, We've got a football game against Archbishop Mitty. That's a school over in San Jose. I teach in San Jose. I should have said that. Uh, so that's a school that uh, our school, Valley Christian, plays against. We got a game against Mitty. Uh, I got a huge test next period, and I haven't studied for it at all. <laughs> very common prayer request. It also is a clear indicator to me that that student will not be listening to me during that class period. They'll be prepping for that test. 
And yeah, they're asking God to like do a miracle of giving them all the answers on the test. Um, and believe it or not, there is the like, I pray that my mom will stop being stupid and let me go to the party on Saturday and that kind of thing. I'm like, you want me to pray that your mom stops being stupid? Okay. All right. So the, the blessing and challenge that comes with that is I want to fully affirm that God cares about all of that stuff. He cares about that football game. He cares about that test. He cares about the party. But I'm sure he does. Uh, but, you know, like my job in that room is to try to kind of expand uh, the things they care about and, and help them care a bit more about other things God also cares about besides the, the, the things that they're focused on. But of course, the reality is that that's not just teenagers, right? That's not just 15 year olds whose scope of concern is way smaller than God's. I, I, I catch myself on that score all the time. I'm like, I, I've been giving way too much thought to this thing, you know, within the scope of the things that matter. I, I'm kind of, I got a narrow focus here. Um, our passage today I think is uh, really helpful at, at, at hitting this, at, at just really exploding the field of our vision and putting the context of our daily struggles, our real concerns, our real suffering, uh, frustration, struggles. It, it names that and, and validates it all, but it puts it in this, as I say, hugely exploded context. So I want to read through this passage. Um, I was assigned... Verse 18 to 25, as I was looking at it, I'm like, I got to back it up to 17 because it just, it it gives the whole thing some context. And as Andy's been saying, we've been going through this series called God is for us. We're looking at chapter eight of the book of Romans. And if you know the Bible and kind of the history of the Bible, the book of Romans has been just this hugely powerful, impactful book within the Bible. It has sparked uh, revivals and reformations and, and renewal movements throughout church history. And then this chapter within the book of Romans, chapter eight, it, it, Paul's kind of bringing it all to its like highest climax. And I kind of want to say maybe the passage I was given is like the highest part of the chapter. So this is the best of the best of the best. Uh, so let's dig in. Verse 17. Yeah, we'll get it up on the board. Now, if we are children, children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? 
But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. There's a lot there. But like I said, this passage, I see it acknowledging and validating the suffering that we experience. I mean, like in, in the immediate context, if you know the kind of first century, the church is going through some specific things. There, it, there, there's, it's, it's going through like early stage pains of, it, of its like infant life, getting along across huge cultural divides, trying to survive with like a questionable legal status within the Roman Empire, especially in this city, the city of Rome, where Paul's writing this letter. Um, but it's also just acknowledging the, the us of it all, the, the we, we, we followers of Christ, we human beings, we have suffering in the present time. And Paul, when he says, you know, what is the language he uses there? Um, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing. That does sound kind of minimizing, but it's, it, it doesn't totally, you know, uh, deny that reality. It, it acknowledges and it validates the fact that we do have these these present sufferings, but it, broad, it, it puts them in a broader context than we are naturally likely to do. First of all, our sufferings are put in the context of Christ's, which is powerful by itself, right? Because we know that Christ suffered. And most days what I'm going through is not that comparable to what Christ went through, right? In his sufferings. But the power in drawing those together is to see that even those sufferings were redemptive, right? God brought about the salvation of the world through Christ's sufferings. And that means he can make my suffering redemptive as well, right? Paul uses this language of like suffering with Christ. That's a powerful way to contextualize my sufferings. It's not just me. I'm not just doing this on my own. I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ. That's the first sort of recontextualization. But then second, Paul puts him in sort of like timeline context, right? Our present sufferings are put in the larger context of the glory that will be revealed, that will be revealed in us. The present being put in the light of the future. But even there, the context is is exploded even more when he starts talking about creation's sufferings. And that, at least as I read this chapter, is kind of a weird move. Right, that he's moving from like talking about the struggles we have to like creation itself groaning and waiting for redemption. This pulls us back, especially when he says, you know, creation itself was subjected to frustration. That's a reference to Genesis three. That's a reference to the the fall. That like when there was uh, you know human sin in the garden, there was this cascading set of consequences to that of frustrations. Um, and so that's the, the, the context Paul's pulling us back to. Um, pulling us kind of out of ourselves to look at the whole universe. Creation groans as in the pains of childbirth right up to now, to the present time. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It's really like personifying the universe. Fancy word, anthropomorphizing, right? Thinking of like the planet, the cosmos, all of creation as like participating with us in our deep desire to be redeemed and liberated from our struggles. We're not alone in that. 
that's all shared. All of this points to this bigger biblical story about the relationship between God, us, and the world. And I think a lot of us tend to chop those relationships up and isolate them from one another. We have a difficult time kind of keeping these three aspects together. God, myself, and then like the world. Um, Oftentimes I'll think about God and his work with the world. He's keeping the planets rotating. He's keeping all the rivers running. He's got a lot going on. And when I think that way, my problems seem too small, right? I leave myself sort of out of that picture of what God's really up to. But then when I look at myself and my relationship with the world, then I end up kind of leading, leaving God out of that. Then it's like, um, I, I feel like it's, it's on me to hold the world up. I've got to keep the planets rotating and the rivers running, right? I'm speaking for some of you. I, my wife knows I never feel that pressure, but I know that she, she and other people like that feel responsibilities. And I noticed that, uh, the other people tend to feel that way. Um, <laughs> but maybe other of us might feel more like it's me against the world, Right? To get what I want, it's, it, it's this sort of like dog-eat-dog fight. Or it's the world against me. And I just feel powerless. I feel like everything's stacked up against me. Because I'm not bringing God into the, my picture of the relationship between myself and the world. Right? I see God in the world. I see myself in the world. And then in my, like, other, like, my quiet times, in my little sacred devotional spaces, then I'm like me and God. Leave the world out of it. But then I, you know, I make these spiritual places where, yeah, it's me and Jesus and, 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 I, and I'm bringing him kind of my feelings and my problems, but I'm keeping the, the scope really small, much smaller than the Bible tends to point me to, right? Because I'm not thinking about what God is doing in the world in general and throughout history in general, and then seeing my place in all of that. I'm seeing God's place in sort of the things I want to get done and asking him for a little bit of help, Right? keeping it small. But in the Bible, we see this much more integrated picture. And I think that whole massive cosmic drama with us involved in it is put in kind of microcosm form in this passage we just read. I've read the passage like a dozen times in the last like three days, and I'm still just kind of swimming in it. You could spend some time with this thing. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't discourage you from taking that home. Um, But what we see in this compressed form here in this passage is is references to all the stuff that's going on in the Bible in terms of God creating a universe mysteriously with our species at the center of it, right? Given this place within creation as prophets speaking his truth into it, priests um, beautifying it and presenting it back to him and kings ruling it with him. Prophet, priest, kings. These are big sort of office holders within the story of God. And the Bible tells us that humanity in general holds those offices within creation. That's pretty massive. Um, given, given this task of playing out God's goodness and his love and his truth within our physical world. But then the Bible also tells us the story of the human rebellion against God's purposes. And then, and as I referenced before, the cascading sets of consequences between, you know, our relationship with him is damaged, but then our relationship with one another is damaged. Our relationships with ourselves is damaged. And what this passage takes us to is the fact that 
the whole fabric of creation is damaged by this, right? Sin has these massive cosmic consequences. Human sin, human rebellion against God has affected not just humans. It, and, and we know this. It, it just, if we're paying attention to like history and the news and stuff, we see, yeah, there's consequences on like the birds, the fish, animals, plants, the air, the water, the soil, the earth itself, the planet. Our treatment of this planet and its treatment of us are part of the biblical story. As much as we kind of don't often acknowledge that. The Bible doesn't really separate the physical and the spiritual. It distinguishes them, but not to isolate them from one another. They're deeply integrated. The point is that human sin has brought frustration into not just our own lives, but into all the beauty and life of our planet. But of course, Paul's not just talking about frustration. He's talking about hope, right? He tells us that Christ is restoring, not just us. He's not just giving us a ticket to heaven, but that Christ is healing the whole universe, healing it of sin's destructive power. By his stripes, we are healed, and so is all of creation with us. God has put our species at the center of a redemptive drama. Our sin has cursed all of creation, and our redemption will heal all of creation. That's just a massive mountaintop perspective. That's like, wow, that, this, this is a truly massive story. Um, but of course, Christ's, while Christ's work on the cross is finished, the curse and redemption drama of creation are still playing out. Right? We're still in the midst of that. So in other words, we don't have all of this yet. It's been accomplished on the cross but we are waiting patiently for our adoption as children. Um, we have the spirits, uh, the spirits. We have the spirit, the Holy Spirit, singular, as the first fruits. But we're waiting for that full inheritance. We wait patiently, as Paul says. If if you see something and you have it, then it's not hope, right? But we we look with hope for these things and we wait patiently. So the. The big sort of picture I, I, I think Paul's pointing us to is that like, yeah, there's, there's suffering in life. Each one of us has it. But when you're suffering, it's not just you suffering. You're participating in this massive cosmic drama. And that is a drama of hope. That is a, that is a drama in which the victory has been won. Our vision gets narrowed. So how do we how do we keep all that in perspective? You know, uh, you get these moments when you're doing sort of a Bible study or you're at church where it's like, wow, this is all really really powerful. But then there's like the parking ticket on your windshield or somebody does something and you're like, ah, and, and you're just like, why is the world against me? Why is it always me? And you know, we kind of get back down to like these sort of pettier perspectives. Uh, and he said last week, I think really powerfully, well, that, yeah, what this means is we have to like preach the gospel to ourselves repeatedly. It's kind of a, you know, kind of an ongoing work. It's not something you sort of get right one time in your Bible study and you're like, got it. No, this is something that we have to sort of um, work into ourselves deeply. 
that's what I was talking about before with my high school students, right? That like it's day in, day out. I'm trying to teach them this big stuff, but then the focus tends to revert. I got the football game. I got the test. I got my mom, all that kind of stuff. So my answer within my classroom, it's not a popular one I tend to find, but it's rituals, right? Um, I, I make my students, so we pray, I get them two or three times a week because we're on an alternating block schedule, like A, B, right? So uh, we pray every time we meet. The last class of the week, whether it's a Thursday or Friday, is the day that I take the prayer requests. I pray that their mom will stop being stupid. I pray for the little things because God cares about them. I never want to make them feel like that, like that stuff is too small. It's not. But on the first day of the week, I make them stand up and we do the Lord's Prayer and the Nicene Creed. And we do it every week, and the eyes just keep rolling. Every Monday, I'm like, all right, stand up. Let's do it. And they're like, ah, because they already have their phone out. And I'm going to put the phone down. Um, stand up. Let, let's do these things. And, and I acknowledge, you know, I talk them through this stuff. Like, I know it, it, it's not just sort of as, you know, kind of modern Americans. As like Christians in America, we tend to have a pretty negative view of Ritual, right? We hear the word ritual, we think sort of dead, rote, going through the motions, and we think of our like relationship with Jesus, and we want to be like, I don't know, you know, whatever that is. We want it to be all kind of like alive and exciting, and everything's always new. Um, we we have this picture of like the old dusty dry bones when we think of like spiritual rituals. And we want sort of the blood pumping. But I always remind people, I'm like, yeah, but you still want the bones. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of guts on the floor, right? You, you need the blood pumping through like a healthy, you know, integrated sort of body. So the, the answer to the dead ritual, mindless rote ritual, to me is not no ritual, right? That just becomes chaos. That's an undisciplined life. The answer is mindful, life-giving thoughtful ritual. And that's hard. It means doing the same thing a lot and bringing your full intentions, your full presence into it every time. So I'm actually um, going to have us do this a little bit. I'm going to invite the band up and I want to put the Lord's prayer up on the board. We want the Nicene Creed is on our website, by the way. I'm always, always happy to see that. It's like the, the uh, doctrinal statement of our church. And if if you all wanted to go an extra hour, I'd go over that too. But uh, for the sake of brevity, we'll just do the Lord's Prayer this morning. But I want to put it on the board. And before we actually like pray it, you know, I leave in the thighs and the vows. I do, I do kind of the older translation of it. Um, and I always, you know, tell my students about why that is. To me, it, it's, this is not the way Jesus spoke it. Jesus did not speak old English. Um, that's not the reason I leave it that way. To me, it just, it like on a subconscious level communicates it to, uh, to us the fact that we are joining in an ancient chorus. It, it, it helps broaden the perspective. It's not just me. It's not just us praying this prayer. We're joining with people going back hundreds of years in terms of this translation, thousands of years in terms of the prayer itself. Um, so we, we have to then, especially because the language is kind of foreign, think through what it's actually saying, right? When we say 
our Father who art in heaven, we are exploding our context, right? We're thinking, we're, we're talking about God being in heaven as far above us as you can imagine, right? He, he, he is the God of all the universe, of all creation, yet we're calling him our Father, right? It just... It has this powerful integration of the most broad, transcendent context and the most intimate uh, me and God perspective. He's my father. He's our father. He's also the God of the whole universe. And we're saying hallowed, which sounds like Halloween. And it actually is related, uh, you know, linguistically, but it means holy, right? Holy. Uh, y- your name is holy. Your kingdom come. You be king, which means your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How much better could we remove ourselves from the picture of, the, uh, of, our, of our focus, right? God, have your will be done. I, I need to stop thinking about how to get my will done all the time. Let me focus on, uh, on you and your will. But then our, you know, our, our concerns are there. They're validated. They're, they're present. God, give us this day our daily bread. That's not the way we would express, I think, our, our desires to have our needs met. If I was to write the prayer, it would probably be like, God... Give us, give me this day enough bread for the rest of my life so I never have to think about bread again. <laughs> and that's not the way Jesus teaches us to pray, right? Give us this day our daily bread, satisfying just the actual need, not the larger desires. Forgive us our trespasses, acknowledging that we're sinners. We don't like to do that, but this makes us do that. We trespass. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Something we like to do even less than acknowledge that we sin is forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or in some older translations, deliver us from the evil one. All of this acknowledging that we live in the context of a spiritual battle. It's real. It's not just sort of me trying to like get through my life. There are stakes involved. There really is an enemy of my soul. And we're, and we're entrusting God to lead us, not into his ways, but deliver us from that. And then ending again with this perspective of putting God at the middle. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. An ultimate sort of hope perspective. So if I can, let me invite you to stand up with me. And we'll end by, well, not we'll end. We'll transition into continued worship by beginning with this prayer. Please pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, Please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.